Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Some of my favorite interviews are the ones where I get to highlight the creative side of pathologists and laboratory professionals. And this shows the intersection of pathology and different kinds of art. Today, my guest is Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. You might remember Dr. Magnani from episode 35, where we talked about her book, The Queen of All Poisons. Well, she's back today to talk about the second book in the Dr. Lily Robinson series. That book is called The Power of Poison. And we'll also talk about Dr. Magnani's work with the CAP Foundation's C-Test and Treat program. Here's Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. I've got Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani back on the show. So this is your second time on the podcast here. So welcome back. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks. It's really exciting to be back. Yeah, it's really exciting to have you back too. All right. Now we're going to talk mostly about the new book in the Dr. Lily Robinson series, The Power of Poison. But uh, before before we get to that, there's something we weren't able to get into the last time I had you on the podcast, and that was your involvement with the, the CAP Foundation's C-Test and Treat program. Right. So let's talk about that for a little bit. First, can, could you kind of give kind of an overview of what is this program? What does it do? Okay. This, as you as you mentioned, is a a CAP Foundation initiative. And what I'm particularly interested in is the aspect of see, test, and treat. And that is a program that will bring free cervical and breast cancer screening uh, to women who are underserved. So they may have language or cultural barriers, financial barriers, meaning they either don't have insurance or have little insurance. And they also may have transportation issues or childcare issues. So by offering this program to these women, we're getting them the care that they need. And I have to say, it's a terrific program. And as you know, Tufts Medical Center was involved in this for five years. Uh, We did the program and it was just wonderful. It's a feel good thing. You know, at the end of the day, you've helped these women, you've taught them a little bit about uh, healthcare and themselves, you know, breast cancer, cervical cancer, and it's great. Now, I wonder, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people and they get involved in programs such as this, it's it's for, you know, maybe they had some kind of experience in their childhood or, you know, as a teenager or something. Did you have some kind of experience like this that influenced you to get involved with this? Or was it just like you found out about it and this is the right thing to do? So that's what you're doing. So it's funny that you should say that. So let me tell you how it started. I was a huge fan of Dr. Gene Herbeck, who, you know, recently passed away. He was a former CAP uh, president, and he started this program in 2001, and he brought the program to federal lands and particularly Native American reservations. One was Standing Rock and the other was Rosebud. And uh, these were women who were not getting the kind of care that they could. And so he wanted to make sure that they were screened adequately for cervical cancer. I listened to him give a talk once. It was a small group of pathologists. And I was so emotionally overwhelmed by this. I thought it was wonderful. And then I discovered another doctor in 2008 at the North Point health and wellness center, I think it was Dr. Lindsay, he started it there and it was a clinic based. Once I heard about those programs, I became so 
motivated to want to bring this to, to my hospital. And Tufts Medical Center is located right in downtown uh, Chinatown. And it was a perfect opportunity to, to offer the program to women who might not be able to get away from work. We'd do it on a Saturday. We would offer childcare. We could watch their kids if they didn't have anybody to watch the kids. And we would make sure that they got the screening that they need and that they needed. And, um, what was interesting is in the course of the five year program, we found that over 20% of the women who got pap tests, uh, they were abnormal. And as with respect to mammograms, over 12% of the women had abnormal findings on the mammogram. So it was definitely worthwhile. And that's what got me started. Now, as a corollary to that, uh, you know that the proceeds from my book, uh, my novels, mm-hmm. my I give to this program because I truly believe in it. And it started out with even the art of secret poisoning, right. uh, where I was giving that money to to the foundation. And so I continue to do that. I think we, we mentioned that I, probably the last time you were on the podcast, too, as well. So you mentioned that you brought this program then to Tufts Medical Center. And I'm curious how... Like when you presented this, that you this is what you wanted to do. How was that idea kind of received? With great skepticism. They had no idea what I wanted to do. How is a pathologist going to organize all this and get it done? And we did. And I found wonderful colleagues in radiology, in uh, GYN, um, and then later on in primary care. And we all came together and did it. And, you know, once we did it that first year, everybody sort of said, wow, we get it. But, you know, it wasn't an easy thing. There was a lot of planning. And that's why when I wrote the paper, we kind of put a roadmap out there on how you might do it, particularly if you were an academic medical center. Uh, this is how you had to approach it. But I have to say it was with skepticism at first and people were like, hmm, what is this? But once we got the community involved, we had liaisons to Chinatown. It was amazing. It really was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the paper that you mentioned, I mean, like you said, you, you lay out exactly how to do it, exa- some of the problems that you encountered and how you got around them. Did you ever hear from anyone who had read that paper and had used it you know, to start their own program that, that, that was an influence on them? I haven't heard from anyone in particular, but I do hope uh, that it's there as a resource for other programs. Now, as you know, it's very popular around the United States. I mean, there are many hospitals that are doing this, and and I hope that they, as I said, they are using our paper as a resource. One last thing about C-Test and Treat. It's based on having a pathologist as the lead. That's the, right. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like knowing what I know about you, that this is probably part of what appealed to you because you're very much, you're a proponent of the visible pathologist. Is that, is that correct? Is that part of what, why you wanted to do this? Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, pathology, again, we're a foundation a specialty and a lot of people think that we're behind the scenes, but we can be up and out front. 
And this was a great way to do that. So the hospital could see what pathologists could do. And by the way, you know, I gave results to patients. I talked to patients. It's very, very rewarding to do that. And they're seeing you as their physician and not necessarily as, you know, just that non-clinical colleague. So I think it was Mm -hmm. great. And also, I think it brought up uh, the pathologists, you know, what we could do with our other colleagues, you know, like I say, our other physician colleagues. That's great to have the pathologist out and interacting with the patients. And most most don't get the opportunity uh, to do that. Right. Let's let's move to the book then. The Queen of All Poisons came out in April of 2019. And now the, the new book, the sequel, The Power of Poison, just came out this year, March of this year, uh, 2021. And I'm curious if at the time you were writing The Queen of All Poisons, did you always intend to continue the story with other books? So, and I'm going to tie this back into a little bit to see, test, and treat, and you'll see the connection. When I started writing this book, I didn't necessarily see that this is a series in particular. I just wanted to continue the stories that I had written in The Art of Secret Poisoning. So as I got more and more involved in The Queen of All Poisons, I really discovered, and I know we talked about this last time, that, you know, I enjoyed writing and why not try and do this as another career? I think it would be fun. So I kind of left it open-ended. And if you recall, also, I mentioned that, you know, when I got serious about the writing, I told the hospital administration that I wanted to step down as chair of pathology and laboratory medicine to focus on a new career. And they were very surprised. I gave them a year to find my replacement. It took them a year and a half. So while I was finishing writing up the book, getting the book ready, remember, because it comes out in 2019, but all the things that have to occur before happen in 2018, right? So you have to get all the editing, you know, you have to get everything buttoned up. And I was trying to meet all the deadlines, run the department, meet with the editors and get all that under control. And um, I was also preparing to give two talks to pathologists at the CAP annual meeting in, in the fall of 2018. And right before I left, I had gone for my routine mammogram and they called me and said, you have invasive breast cancer. So this was quite a shock to me. You know, once I had the biopsy and I knew that I had to fly off to CAP, uh, give the talks, knowing that I had this new diagnosis Uh and meeting with people at the CAP Foundation and feeling very strongly that women really need to have the opportunity to, uh, to, to get the health care that they need. I was lucky that I, I had that mammogram. But so what I'm saying is that, as it turned out, I at the end of that year, when I was trying to get the book all together, it was, I spent a lot of time <laughs> in surgery and having treatments instead. And so I didn't really 
plan ahead for the series. But once I put that behind me, I started thinking I could make it a series. So that was a kind of a long way of getting there. But it, it gives you also the motivation as to why I feel very strongly about supporting screening for cancer. Um, I had been lucky to have been screened my whole life. Again, this was a shock to me mm-hmm. when I got the diagnosis. So. You know, because reading The Queen of All Poisons, it does seem like a complete story. And the, the ending, you know, it seems like an, like an ending. Although, as we'll see, you are able to continue the story actually very well. Once you decided you were going to go with the sequel, how, how did you go about deciding where you were going to go with the story? Well, I, I think, you know, when you get to the end of uh, The Queen of All Poisons, there's that again, open question. I don't want to give it away for anyone who hasn't read it, but you know, there's a whole whole plot. There's two plots. There's sort of the mission driven uh, where there's this mass poisoning that Lily is involved in. And then of course there is the whole subplot of her daughter and what's happened to her daughter and what she thinks has happened to her daughter. And so it was a natural uh, ending for me to be able to continue that story in the next book. And also, you know, just figuring out uh, there was some open-ended things from uh, the first book, other things in the plot where I could naturally just bring it over. So it made it easy for me to do that. And I just had to come up with a new mission while I was finishing up the old story. So, you know, it was good. (laughs) It was fun. Okay. Did you plan out the whole plot? I mean, I know we talked about this the last time, the kind of the Michael Crichton influence and his sort of method. Uh, Did you, did you plan out the whole story or did you just like have a a initial idea for the mission and then kind of see where it went? Yeah. So what I usually do is I think about the overall book, where I want to start, where I want to go and some of the things in between. I may even have an idea about a chapter, but um I have to say that when I start writing, you know, it goes anywhere. And, uh, you know, I try and stick a little bit along with what my idea is, but then I get in this little pathway here and another little thing there. And I think as you, as you figured out when you were reading the second book, you know, the, the power of poison, sometimes there are surprises that come that you really don't see coming as the reader. Lily doesn't see, you know, as the character. And I, as the writer, I'm like, ooh, I'm surprised that that happened, but even though I wrote it. So it's kind of it's kind of fun. It makes the writing fun. It's not so methodical. It's more organic. Yeah, you know, I've heard that from a few different authors that, you know, as you're writing, it, this, the story kind of takes on a life of its own. Some of the characters do things almost on their own like you didn't expect. And I always found that interesting how even though you're creating the story and you created the characters, they could still surprise you with the things that they do or say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I find myself surprised too. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So what about, I mean, the power of poison has an international aspect to it. It literally travels to several different countries. Uh, Was that something you, you really wanted to include? was like, like, was that part there at the beginning? Uh, yes. So I usually pick um, sort of venues for things to happen. In many cases, they're places that I've been and I spend a fair bit of time. I've spent a fair bit of time there. 
or places I was planning on going to uh, before the pandemic hit. So, for example, in that book, In the Power of Poison, um, I have spent time in South Korea and uh, I have always planned to get to Hong Kong, but never been able to get over there. And of course, I've spent a lot of time in France and Rims, France is particularly something, a particular place that I've really enjoyed. So Rennes, I guess it would be better said. All right. So you get to sort of explore places that you always wanted to go to or like it's sort of research. Right. Or places that I've actually been to. And so I have a feel for it. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So you, you're just not like, it's not like you're just sort of making it up. Like you have an idea of what it's really like there. Okay. Right. Okay. Exactly. Now I want to talk about one of the themes in the power of poison. And this is that people may not be what they seem like, even people that you've known f- for years. And there's a quote from, from Dr. Robinson. She says, how well do we really know someone? I never seem to know. How did you come up with this theme? Because it, you know, when you look at some of the backstories of the characters in the book, it, it, it ties into that. So, where did this theme come from? Uh, I can't say where it really came from. I don't know. But I, other than if you look at your own life, think about people you know, or you read something in the paper, and it, you'll be surprised that someone might have been uh, an unexpected hero or an unexpected criminal or they're hiding something, you know, and I think I say in the book, it could be anything from, you know, an affair to, uh, you know, someone who had some kind of dealings in a political organization you didn't know about. Um, but I think we are surprised in our real lives by people and and might see things you know, might be revealed later that we didn't expect. Mm-hmm. So it's a very natural thing. Of course, expanded on that, or, or what should I say, made it more dramatic, I guess, in my books that, you know, someone, of course, would see Lily Robinson as a pathologist and absolutely don't know what she does in her, you know, off time. I mean, that's, she's the one who's harboring a tremendous secret, right? A covert life. Right, right. And the book kind of goes a lot into that with her. That she has this sort of internal conflict about what, you know, being a pathologist and then this sort of secret life, like you mentioned. Right. You know, she's a very conflicted character. She obviously believes strongly in the Hippocratic Oath. She wants to save patients. She likes her cases. But I think that, she, you know, she's been told that the good of the many, you know, outweigh the good of the one and she's the one in this case and so she feels that if she can help save uh, a large number of people by preventing you know some terrorist group or some governmental thing that could destroy the united states let's say or another country then she's on board with that it's hard i think for her to do it and which is why she's constantly questioning herself but she does it This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. We'll be right back. LabVine enables improved healthcare by helping labs future-proof, transform careers, and build professional relationships. They do this with tools, solutions, and resources curated from internationally recognized sources. I want to tell you about several new features on LabVine right now. 
One of them is the Lab Relevance Compass from Jeremy Schubert, who you might remember from episode 65 of this podcast. There's also a webinar that Jeremy did that goes into more detail about the Lab Relevance Compass, which you can find on Vinestream. You can also find a couple new courses on communication skills from 2020 Science, and there are several new content experts as part of the ConfLab as well. You can check out LabVine by following the link in the show notes, and you can sign up absolutely free. And while you're there, you can also listen to the People of Pathology podcast right there on my Vinestream channel. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Magnani on the People of Pathology podcast. Some of the characters, you know, like we mentioned, the backstory aspect and... Some of the characters, uh, like I don't want to give away anything from the book, but there, there are there are connections uh, that are very unexpected for for a few of them. Did you have those in mind as you were writing the the first book, The Queen of All Poisons, or did those come together during the writing for The Power of Poison? No, I think they came together in The Power of Poison, and again, some of them I might not have planned. Others, of course, I did plan because it made sense from the first book, but, um, you know, as one of the characters, as you mentioned, you think of him as in a certain way, actually, even from the short stories to um, The Queen of All Poison, and then you discover something very I'll say exciting. Okay. About this character that comes kind of towards the end of the book um, that no one sees coming. And so that wasn't necessarily planned at the start, but somehow it felt natural when I wrote it. Like, yeah, you know, I like this character. Let's really, let's really put this, uh, this mission on him in this way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like the, the, the scene that you're talking about towards the end of the book. I really like that one. That 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 was surprise. That was a that was a good surprise. Yeah. So as with in the Queen of All Poisons, you included parts of dialogue where Doctor Robin Robinson explains the, the science behind what she's doing, and you know, a, a kind of parts about the poison she's using and the way she uh, administers them. And we we talked about this a bit last time. This is again, I think part of the Michael Crichton influence because he does that as well. Now in the, in the new book though, you've got Dr. Robinson explaining uh, the science to characters that might not understand what she's talking about. And it has a bit of a a comedic effect. Can you talk about this? Why did you uh, do it this way? Yeah. Well, a couple of things there. One is I do put a lot of science in there, and maybe some people will criticize that and say, oh, gosh, there's just so much, there's just too much science. And you might even skip over that if you're not interested in the science and go on to the to the rest of the plot. But I enjoy it because, and I've had people tell me they learn something. It's like a little bit of a, a science lesson. So when yeah. I have the characters talking to each other, um, if Lily is talking to another doctor, I try and keep the dialogue pretty real. Like, how would it really be? 
Um, in fact, in the new book that I'm writing, I have cut back a little bit on it, but I try and make it real doctor talk. And then when Lily has to explain it or she goes on at length and there are non-science characters, let's say she's talking to some of the other agents or whatever, I let them use the eye roll just like you as the reader could use the eye roll like, oh, God, she's going into the science again. You know, can she just tell us what she means? So um, I decided to, to, you know, so that you, again, as the reader could have the eye roll, oh, gosh, and then Lily actually has to explain it. That way, hopefully, the information does get conveyed in a way for the for the reader to follow, but it does make it kind of fun writing, I have to say. I like when Lily goes into her little lectures and they all kind of go, oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. Okay, so we know that that Lily Robinson is kind of loosely based on, on you, I guess, at least a little bit. Do you do that kind of thing in your own life where you kind of, like you said, go off on, your, on little lectures? Um, I'm not sure that I do. Um, I may have. Uh, you'd have to ask my staff or my family, <laughs> okay. I guess. But, uh, you know, I try and break the science down for people. But I do I, – I think what it is, Dennis, is I really enjoy teaching. And I've yeah. spent a lot of my career in different aspects, even before I was a doctor teaching. We've talked about that. And it's just another way of teaching. It's, you know, hey, here's some interesting poisons and, you know, maybe you'll learn something. And one of the things I find now as a writer, I've got other authors who are emailing me and saying, here's the plot in my book or here's a scene in my book. And I'm looking for a poison that might go with that. What can you recommend? And I find myself recommending why don't you try this for your book? And then another person, what made sense was a different poison. And, and so, you know, it's kind of fun. They see me now, even though, uh, you know, from reading my books or, or meeting me that maybe they can learn something. Oh, that's, that's interesting. You're, you're almost like a science consultant for other authors. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fun. Okay. Okay. Another, another quote from the power of poison is, Doctors in particular are puzzle solvers, and the supreme art of puzzle solving falls to the pathologist. This is a great quote. I love this one. And I know oh. this is uh, this is one aspect of the field of pathology that you enjoy yourself. Uh, why was it important to include this this kind of quote in in the book for you? Uh, yes, thank you for that. I do believe that the pathologists are the these sort of the ultimate puzzle solvers. You know, some people, you've probably heard this expression, they call the pathologist the doctor's doctor. Yeah. I know some people don't like that, but I actually do like that because we're seen as a resource, not just to our patients to help figure out what they have, but to help our clinical colleagues, you know, with their patients, with their cases. And for me, it's the, the joy and the excitement of the chase, if you will, the, the making that diagnosis, figuring it out rather than managing the patient, which we, I leave to many of my other doctor colleagues. So I do believe that pathologists are, as you say, the, uh, supreme puzzle solvers, if you will. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, what about sort of the the mentoring aspect? I mean, this is something that Dr. Robinson does in the in or at least begins to in the book with one particular very important character. Do you think this is something important for pathologists to do as well as far as mentoring it's kind of the next generation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think pathologists can be great teachers. I really enjoy mentoring um, medical students or people who are even looking to get into medical school. Just recently, uh, I have been looking after someone who will be starting medical school. How exciting uh, this fall and have offered myself as a you know mentor. You talk to me about the field, about anything. They're not necessarily going to be pathologists. But I think they all the medical students should understand what pathology is and how important it is. So when I was chair, I, I used to give um, tours uh, once or twice a week to medical students, usually first year medical students, to show them how important the laboratory was as a foundation for medicine. So I love mentoring and I love teaching. That's definitely a great way to, because as, as we know, you know, pathology, there's there aren't enough pathologists, there aren't enough lab professionals, and this type of mentoring is a great way to kind of uh, get people interested in the field, for sure. Yes, I yeah. agree. Okay, okay. The last scene in The Power of Poison, th- this is a a big cliffhanger, and I, like, I was upset reading that that, that was the end. Oh, <laughs> I want. I wanted more from that, and I know you've told me that you recently finished the third book in the series. You finished the at least the initial writing part. So, without kind of giving anything away, what what can you tell me about the about the next book? Okay, so the next book is called "A Message in Poison," and um, most of the action takes place in Washington D.C. and a country called Jakovikstan. And so there's a lot of back and forth between those two places. And so what I've tried to do in this book is, again, there's a mission, you know, what's going on, you know, what's the poisoning aspect? Because, again, that's sort of the theme of the books. But I have tried to bring together all those loose ends that you may be wondering about. And how does Lily, you know, interact with that's certain, as you say, medical student, what happens there? I'd, again, not wanting to give it away from the first book. And also more about her talking about uh, even her fellow, uh, Dr. Kelly. Um, you learn more about, you know, there was also a cliffhanger about uh, the mother of uh, the girls, right? Right. Um, yeah. You know, what happened with her. So all of that gets tied up in this book while that other mission is going on. And also exciting for me is I got a chance to create another character who I think is a fabulous character. He's a medical examiner uh, from Washington, D.C., and someone that Lily works with. So I think, you know, that's fun, too. And when you get to the end of this book, I think you'll feel that so many things have been wrapped up and yet I leave, you know, you know, the way I write, I have to leave a little thing at the end where you go, what? <laughs> okay. And now it's, so this is a, this is a trilogy then. Is that, yes. Do you think that's going to be the end of the story for Lily Robinson or is this something you might 
uh, come back to some in the future? Well, I think this ties up this, um, you know, this whole series of uh, subplots, if you will. And I think if I do another Lily Robinson, it might just be more of a standalone. And we might just look at it that way rather than uh, a continuation of all the subplots. So right now I'm, I'm in the process of doing just some edits on the new book. Again, I, I I really liked this new book. I'm excited about it. And yeah, it, it seems like the writing went pretty quickly for that. Well, let's put it this way: I, you know, now that I'm actually spending time writing, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of my new job. It right. does go faster because now you have the opportunity to sort of sit at your desk every day and do the work. So you're absolutely right. I was able to write this really in just a few months and now I'm just going to, I'm going through it. It's already been to, uh, through, um, two people have read it, uh, who've given me suggestions for some editing. And so I'm working on that now and it's supposed to come out, uh, I think by maybe mid year next year, that's the pub date. So that's why I'm trying to get everything ready. All right, so then what what about after after that? Would do you have any other do you have do you have any new projects in mind after you're done with the with the Lily Robinson trilogy? Yes. So as I mentioned, I'm leaving the door open to write more on, on that character. But while the book was out with uh two other people to review uh this new book, I started writing, and you're gonna laugh, maybe four different books because I you know, oh, one, wow. well, I'm, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I, I was trying to, as they say, sort of stick a landing somewhere. So I created a new character and I thought, well, this new character could be a new series. So that was one thing. And I started a book. I had already figured out the plot on that, uh, where that was going to go. So I put it aside and then I tried a few other books that were more that were based more on um a coming of age kind of thing and a uh, story for women i so i started something like that and then i also started kind of a fun nonfiction book that might be a corollary to some of the books that i you know some of the novels i have i thought that could be fun too oh, so okay. i haven't figured it out yet exactly where i'm going to go and i guess my mind has to get through a message in poison and get that out the door and then I can focus better. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. That does sound like fun. All right. That's great. Uh, all right. So Dr. Magnani, this has been, been great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, and, and it was really nice to, to uh, chat with you again. Is there anything that you wanted to mention uh, that I haven't asked you? I don't think so, but I really enjoyed this, Dennis. So thank you. And again, if for people who, who are listening, you know, it really would be terrific if you, if people could um, help support the CAP Foundation, because I think it's important that all, all of us in, in this country and I guess so in the world too have access to the kind of medical care that we need uh, as people. So. I'll link in the show notes to the paper that you wrote, if that's okay. So yeah. that if, yeah. So if, uh, so other people can read it and if they're interested in starting a, a program, they've got the roadmap right there of how to do it. And of course I'll link to, uh, to both of the books 
so people can pick those up as well. All well, right. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate All right. it. All right, Dr. Barbara Jean Mignani, thank you very much. Thank you. Great big thanks to Dr. Mignani. Here's a preview of the next episode with Dr. Jeremy Lee, and then I'll be back with some final comments. But then how I get to know about this problem is that, but so I started the interview by just asking around and people all say, oh, wow, this will be uh, useful for surgeons. So then, uh, but I didn't know that many surgeons at the time, especially oncology surgeons. So I decided to just go to a conference. So I went to the American College of Surgeon annual conference in San Francisco, uh, and then just basically stopped every surgeon that I saw at the venue and then say, hey, look at these images, are these useful? So a lot of surgeons are, so everybody was fascinated by the images that I showed them, but the response was, well, it was really overwhelming because every specialty is different, every protocol is different. But then one pivotal moment that happened at the conference was one surgeon who told me that you think it's just us who cannot see the lymph nodes, even the pathologist can't see it. And then I was like, huh, oh. I didn't expect that. And it was just like, I didn't know that even if it's outside of the body, people still have difficulty finding them. I just had a hard time imagining it. But then I decided to say, okay, let me dig into the literature to try to see what exactly the clinical need is. You can hear more from Dr. Jeremy Lee in next week's episode. Somebody asked me about a year ago, who would be your dream guests for your podcast? And for me, one of them was Dr. Mugnani. So it was a real treat to have her on the show the first time. And we, we stayed in touch since then. And so it's very exciting for me to have her back on the show. That's just a, a really cool thing. And something else that's really cool, the Pathologist Magazine came out with their power list last week. And it's interesting that there are quite a few people that have been guests on the show that are on the power list. And yeah, okay, I'm on the list too. <laughs> So thank you to the pathologist for that. It's an honor for me to be in such great company. I'll have links in the show notes to everything I talked about with Dr. Mugnani today, including her books and her article about the C-Test and Treat program. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me at, on LinkedIn, or you can just go to peoplewithpathology.com. You'll find the links to Twitter and LinkedIn, and there's also those little buttons so you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or you can listen to the episode right there on the website. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.